Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Te presentamos a la familia López. Fashion es su pasión. Vas a ver que estos flergies los va a tener todo el mundo. Y cuando se enteraron de que Walmart ahora tiene un probador virtual para su centro de visión. Fashion show virtual. Aquí viene Silvia con monturas preciosas de DKNY. Le sigue José en lentes de Nike y Sandra con lentes de Vivi que le quedan bellos. Con mis flare jeans. Pruébate todos los looks con el probador virtual de Walmart. Sube tu prescripción y compra tus lentes online para que te lleguen directo a casa. Bienvenido a un cuidado de visión más fácil. Bienvenido a tu Walmart. Se aplican restricciones. Visita walmart.com para más detalles. Episode 46 of the Bowery Boys, P.T. Barnum's American Museum. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we are very glad to be back. And we have a very special topic. Uh, a place <laughs> it's that's, a very special it episode. It is. It's, but this place is no longer here, so don't go looking for it on your maps. The Barnum American Museum, however, was the premier social entertainment spot of New York City in the 19th century. And believe it or not, probably the most famous museum in the U.S. in 19th century America. A key cultural institution, but it was also a place for the upper class to go, a place for the lowbrow to go. It was all sorts of different things going on. Some of them offending our own sense of decency now. For but, instance, yes. what we would call, quote-unquote, freaks on display. And, you know, it's funny because I think most people think circus when they hear the name Barnum. Sure, who doesn't? Barnum and Bailey. Ringling Brothers, Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth. But, listener, know that Barnum didn't get into the circus business until he was 60 years old. He was already a celebrity. He was already a big star. There was a lot of humbuggery happening before (laughs) he turned 60. So you will also, along the way, not only know a little bit about Barnum, but meet some of his friends, friends that happen to include Tom Thumb, the Fiji Mermaid, a pair of Siamese twins, and a lot more interesting characters along the way. So step right up as we head inside Barnum's American Museum. Okay, Greg, with that patriotic setup that we <laughs> yes. just said, why don't you do the um, situating today? Do the honors. To, to tell do... us where we are, when we are, what's going well, on. Well, do this a, a little differently. The Barnum's American Museum was located on the corner of Broadway and Ann Street. It was a five-story building. Now, instead of like going into the details about what the building looked like, I want to tell you what the neighborhood looked like. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were standing right in front of the doorway and you turned around, what would you be seeing? Well, because I'm a little fuzzy on where Ann is. 
Ann Street is south of City Hall. It's today JNR Music World, the the big place that sells electronics right, and things. That is the, sort of the southern edge of it. So if you were on the front stoop of Barnum's American Museum and you were looking out, if you're looking directly north, uh, you would see City Hall. Right to the side of it and actually close to the museum is Park Row, what we call Park Row today. It was once a theater district, but during the duration of the museum, it would go through this transformation of becoming Newspaper Row, where all the great newspapers would have their offices right there. Now, across the street from Barnum's was the Astor House, which was one of the first hotel endeavors of the Astor family. Right. Slightly up the street a little bit, a man by the name of Charles Lewis Tiffany was just getting his own business started. Mm-hmm. And then a little south of Astor and a little bit south of the museum, you, of course, have a building that is still standing in St. Paul's Chapel. And we're talking about the 1840s, 1850s, right. 1860s. The museum opened in 1841 and closed. Well, not closed. <laughs> we will tell you how it ended. 1865. The museum would be open six days a week, 15 hours a day. Wow. It's Throughout the course of its being open, 30 million tickets were sold. And although there had been smaller museums at this time, this was really the first big museum in the city. Well, Tom, tell us a little bit about the man who sparks all of this. Uh, P.T. Phineas. Phineas Taylor Barnum. Taylor. He was born July 5th, 1810 and lived until April 7th of 1891. So he had a full life. He grew up in Bethel, Connecticut, the son of Mm -hmm. a merchant. As a young guy, P.T., well, he got started early in commerce and he was part owner of a general store where he really learned how to haggle. Uh, he learned how to tell people what they wanted in order to get them to buy whatever it is well, that they were he was selling picking in the store. Up the game very early on, it sounds like teaching himself the ropes. And he did a little bit of everything. I mean, he ran the store, he got into real estate speculation early on, he most profitably started his own lottery. Really? His own statewide lottery, because they weren't, <laughs> they weren't regulated at the time, so people could Clearly, just... Anyone could start a lottery. P.T. Barnum had his own lottery and made, unsurprisingly, quite a bit of money <laughs> off of it. Now, he also started his own newspaper because he was a little bit ticked off that the Calvinists and other prudes were, were trying to take over and didn't want people to have their own lottery. And what, they were age, anti- yeah, what age was he, by the way? Well, he started the Herald of Freedom, the newspaper, in 1829. So he would have been 19 years old. <laughs> a 19-year-old starting a newspaper called in, the Herald of Freedom. In Danbury, Connecticut. And he railed against lawmakers and other people who were trying to outlaw these lotteries. <laughs> Not really stuck on the lottery. They didn't want. Well, he had a lot of money coming in from these. Uh huh. Not surprisingly, PT found himself in some libel cases, which (laughs) landed him in prison actually for two months. Wow. And he, the newspaper editor and publisher, decided to spin that one for all it was worth, sell some more papers in the process, and really work this sort of PR angle. And actually had people coming in. You know, he had ministers coming in to tend to him. He had yeah, wow. It's like he was living the attention that he would later put onto other things to draw people into the museum and yeah, circuses he, and everything that he, he did. He was creating a cause celebre <laughs> himself. <laughs> yeah. You know, at 19 years old. 
However, in 1834, a few years after he got out of the clink, mm -hmm. lotteries <laughs> were banned in Connecticut. So Barnum sold the paper and he moved to New York and, well, looked for other opportunities. Okay. What do you do after your lotteries dried up? You can't go back to a general store. Well, you look for a 161-year-old woman. <laughs> what? Joyce, Excuse me? <laughs> it came to Barnum's attention that there was a woman named Joyce Heth who was living down in Philadelphia, and she was on display, if you will, as the... I'm not joking about this, Greg. Uh -huh. She claimed to be the 161-year-old nurse to the infant George Washington. What? 161 years old? What? That's insane. Who believed that? <laughs> People believed it. People at least were curious enough... He would later write that, quote, at the outset of my career, I saw that everything depended upon getting people to think and talk and become curious and excited over and about the rare spectacle. I mean, this right. really sums up his whole life. And he realized that right at the beginning with Joyce Heth, he went down there, he saw this woman for himself. She was wrinkled, <laughs> six-inch fingernails and a huge oh helmet gosh. of hair and sitting upon this sort of pillowed throne when he walked in and saw her for the first time. <laughs> Barnum bought the act for a thousand dollars and came to New York and looked for a place to exhibit her in 1835. And he plastered the town with advertisements and with publicity stunts galore, she also played up her own angle. She knew where her dinner was coming from. <laughs> and, you know, she told stories about the infant Georgie and all of this. And they came. Crowds came and came and came to talk to her, to sing songs with her. As the crowds dwindled, he then took her on tour around okay. the, the young nation. And then finally, she died. And they did an autopsy, and it turned out that she was 80 years old. She was half the age. She was half the age. So Joyce had passed on, but Barnum's career had just really been born. By this point, he had really built up his reputation. So around this time, his, his eye fell on uh, this place that's called the Scudder American Museum. Now, let me tell you a little bit of background about this and how this got into Barnum's life. The story of the Scudder American Museum, it actually starts, the, some of the artifacts from it are from an original collection of the Tammany Society, which was actually opened in 1790. Then this man came along whose name is John Scudder. He was sort of a proto-Barnum. Mm -hmm. um, in 1802, he bought this very poorly run museum. Eventually, in 1816, he moved it to a building called the New York Institute. What I find kind of interesting is this was sort of a rent-free building where all these different institutions went, including a first one of the early incarnations of the New York Historical Society where it was also in here. Scudder's American Museum was also so there, he moved his museum onto the second floor. Later, his son would take over. It would not get to the heights of Barnum's, but it was a collection of sort of rare and unusual things that had been picked up by sea captains along the way, mm -hmm. and they gave them to him or he bought them from them. Taxidermy, shells, waxworks of sort of fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty, that kind of thing. He even had some live animals. As a matter of fact, he kind of outgrew the second floor. In 1830, they kicked him out because of all of this. And he had to end up moving into the building, which then would become our American Museum. But at the time, 1830, it was actually a poorhouse. Uh-huh. At the a, corner of Ann and Broadway. At, at corner of Ann and Broadway. There was a there was a bank in the basement, but it was a it was a poorhouse. This museum would kind of be popular too. In eighteen forty, 
he even made $11,000 in yearly profits. But but Scudder's heirs, by this point, didn't really want to take care of this museum anymore. But they didn't want to sell the pieces off because it meant a lot to John Scudder. So they were kind of willing to get rid of it on the cheap. Here comes Barnum, not a lot of money. He's looking for something to do, right? But with a reputation for showmanship. Exactly. So in 1841, they sold it to Barnum for $15,000. Which was a lot of money or was not Well, it was less than the collection itself was worth. So the museum opened January 1st. 1842. Now, Tom, I'm going to give a little walking tour. Yes, please. Take us inside. So we're standing out in front of the American Museum. What you're basically, well, you're hearing at first, he had live bands drawing people out out, off the street into the museum to get people's attention. But there are these kind of like somewhat grotesque animal paintings along the side of the wall that are very eye-catching. So, I mean, this this building is standing out, clearly, I mean, compared to everything else. And, the, and it's di- huge. It takes up the whole block. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, compared to the dirty drabness of the street in front of it, I mean, you're, you're, you're compelled to go in. So, sure enough, we're inside. You pay 25 cents, but you're also dealing with these big crowds. He would get around 15,000 visitors a day. Mm. So, you know, you're pushing through. So, I'm going to give you some of the types of things that you would see. We're going to start with those things that inhabit the natural world. He would have taxidermy exhibits of all manner of animals, but he would ha- also had a live menagerie. He had li- live creatures in this building where they probably shouldn't have been. Elephants, snakes, bears. He would often even house animals with their own predators so that people could watch the action as animals were getting eaten and torn apart. It's kind of hard to imagine animals or a zoo being inside what looks basically like an apartment No, it, crazier than that. It's not the zoo, but the aquarium that they had down in the basement with a host of fish. At some point, they had hippos. But here's this unbelievable part. In 1861, he got two white whales of course <laughs> in, in the basement and this tank was 58 feet long that's really nothing it's society i mean they're whales sure enough the whales died they kept dying they actually went through nine whales so we had all of these animals wild animals the smell just think of the smell aquatic animals hot summer day so beyond the animals you had paintings and murals you had, most of these were on the second floor these vast dioramas on the walls it was a host of different scenes mostly kind of historical depictions it wasn't art for the sake of art it you know it wasn't to, to look at the artist it was to look at the topics mm-hmm. And so it wasn't really world-class art. It was more educational. On the second floor, you also had wax figures, also historical. Mixed in with the artwork? Some of it, yes. There was a waxwork section. But, you know, they'd mix it around a little bit to create an ambiance. Um, so these were also historical wax figures. Sometimes it would be stories that they pulled right out of the newspaper. You know, it was like sensational stuff. There was even a woman on trial around the time who had murdered a woman and child. And it was, she was still on trial. She was still going on wow. in the city. He had some facts wax. He called her the witch of Staten Island and did a wax diorama of her chopping them up with a, a bloody axe. Mind you, this coming from the showman who also was put away for libel. <laughs> not, a, not a big surprise, you know? But then right across the way, there would be Jesus Christ in the Last Supper. He also had my favorite wax figure, which I must mention, Jefferson Davis of the Confederate States, of right. course. Jefferson Davis, by the way, the wax that they had was him in drag. 
They had it with him in a dress. So as to kind of mock <laughs> ah, him. Right, because, of course, that would stir up the union crowds. Well, so there's a, but there's a big punchline to that, which we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. Scattered around. you. <laughs> I can't wait for that one. Scattered around, you'd have, like, historical artifacts, many sensational graphic items, like weapons that John Brown used at Harper's Ferry, who actually was also in wax. Then, of course, you had the lecture room, the lyceum, if you will. It could eventually fit a... 3,000 3, people, is that people, correct? Right. He would later expand this to, to fit 3,000 people, and it would be a performance hall. and a, He called it his moral lecture room in the 1850s. Well, it's it kind of why expanded. he could get away with some of this stuff. It's like, well, yeah, we're doing this crazy thing over here because over here we're teaching you about some more, yeah, good it was moral always, codes. Right. It was a sort of contradiction. But the moral lecture room so-called, allowed him to lure in these so-called respectable people sure. <laughs> to his museum. And some of the speakers that he would have, like, you know, he would bring in, like, say, speakers from the like, frontier heroes, for mm. instance, who would come in and tell these exaggerated stories of the West, of, like, battling Indians. And what's great about it is not only would they be just sitting there talking, they'd have, like, painted backdrops that would be moving. They would have pyrotechnic displays. He didn't let it get dull on stage for very long. No, he, he would do productions. He would do whole plays, of course. Right, usually with a moral twist, like one called The Drunkard was his first play, which was a morality oh, tale, obviously. Temperance. He was all about temperance. He also staged Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1853, but gave it a happy ending <laughs> where all the slaves were free. Right, because, you know, they, he didn't want to depress us crowd he's they need to go up and do some stuff and right around the for museum. the kids too and throughout this like so that's the theater yeah so that's the theater i mean there's so many other miscellaneous things going on at this time there's the there's jugglers ventriloquists there's living statuary there's tableau everywhere you look i would Gyps. like those people who stand and pose as the statue of liberty that exactly it's kind of that but a lot scarier there's gypsies Mm-hmm. There's albinos, fortune there's tellers, rope dancing. There was acrobatic fleas. <laughs> they had fortune tellers. There was also a doctor of phrenology. This there was this All trend right. in the 19th century to measure your skull, and it told you certain things about your personality. So there was an official doctor to inspect people's heads. On the roof, there were actually these beautiful gardens, and you know it's a five store building. Around this time, you can see a lot of New York City. It's a nice view. At night, he would shoot off fireworks because keep in mind it's open 15 hours so it's open well into the evening and they shoot up a bunch of fireworks at the top of the building and be- beyond that also i believe hot air balloons could land on the roof and yes take they off did and-, and then but finally you know he, he, all this was going on he wasn't even but he wasn't afraid to sort of play tricks even on his own visitors he wasn't afraid to like see how far he could go there were these signs that were around and it said this way to the egress mm-hmm. and so people who you I've know never seen an egress before like an egress I'd love to see an egress. I mean, there's so many, like, what could that be? So they keep walking, and then there's the door that says, here's the egress, and then you open the door, and it was the exit, and people were outside, and they had to, like, go back in and pay more admission, but there was, like, a joke behind it of, like, don't tell your friends about the egress. (laughs) Right, because, of course, an egress is another word for an exit. Yes, but it's also, I mean, could you imagine how scandalous if someone, if, if, if a museum did this today? That's just one of the things that's scandalous about the, <laughs> the, the, 
Barnum American yes. Museum. But the jokes from the visitors, and the visitors were eager to be a, a part of the joke. Well, People I guess go, I have to pay my 25 cents again and go back in. <laughs> so those are like the main components, but we, now I think we need to focus on really the stars. Because we really talked a lot about different you know, objects that were on display and other types of animals and even some people exotic that were on display. But we haven't really talked about the marquee attractions. Oh, yes. The people who got top billing because he really went out and he'd pay top dollar to get people to join the museum, Mm -hmm. put them on display, and then he'd plaster the town with ads for these people. His first great marquee star was not a living being, but might have been in the past. Its name is the Fiji Mermaid. There was this sort of the Boston equivalent of Barnum. His name was Moses Kimball, and he made a deal with Barnum. He had the Fiji Mermaid, and he rented it to Barnum for $12.50 a week. So Barnum had this rented. He rented to the Fiji Mermaid. He then planted a new story not just well into several papers, but planting one into the New York Herald, you know, back when it's good, responsible journalism. Right, sure. Um, that this mermaid had been found off the Fiji Islands and had been discovered by Japanese fishermen and then was now in the hands of the famous Dr. J. Griffin of the Lyceum of Natural History in London. That sounds very official. Um, yeah, doesn't it? So he made all these flyers throughout t- of town with this beautiful female mermaid with long hair, like in front of her breasts. It was a cr- it was crazy. People wanted so badly to see it that the mermaid actually made its debut not at the American Museum. They had to rent out a concert hall for one week, and Griffin was on the stage. Uh, talking about the mermaid, talking about what the mermaid's life might have been like, talking about how it was found. Now, it's not a real mermaid. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if you were expecting a real mermaid. First of all, there's not a Dr. Griffin. It was just one of like Barnum's cohorts. Yes, um, he was a friend, of, a former attorney and friend of Barnum's. And so, you know, it was advertised as this beautiful sea creature. But when you saw it, it was like this actually kind of like hideous, ugly, <laughs> shriveled thing. Like it was um, like basically the torso of a monkey attached to the body of a fish. And <laughs> but, but, it's just so, it's so hideous and it's... It's so ugly. It's so ugly when you see this thing. It's like the ugliest thing you've ever seen. But... but when it moved to the American Museum, ticket sales tripled for that month. But that was one of the first big ones. But that's not the that's not the one that, that Barnum's known for. I believe that would have to be a certain a certain little Charles Stratton. Is that who you're talking? I about? think so. Charles Stratton uh, was five years old and had a dwarf condition where he was only he was under two feet tall. Barnum came across him and decided to lure him into the show. He christened him General Tom Thumb. Oh, yes. Now, how a five-year-old would be christened a general <laughs> is left to your imagination. Little Charles was under two feet tall, and I think that Barnum felt that crowds would be more appreciative of the fact that he was so small if they knew that he was a little bit older than five. Okay. Because <laughs> it just isn't that spectacular to see a small five-year-old. No, but to see a small... 11-year-old. Tom actually took well um, to the show business and became a showman himself. He got some acting lessons and learned to do imitations of famous people. He did a <laughs> Napoleon routine, and, and, and he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. 
he was drinking at the age of seven, smoking cigars at the age of 11. Oh, but I'm he sure was, that's very good for his little body. He was a huge hit in New York and sold out tickets like mad. Barnum then took him on a worldwide tour in 1844. So Barnum got him in 42, uh-huh. took him on tour in 44 and 45 throughout Europe, and he really played you know, the royal palaces. He was taken in by <laughs> Queen Victoria and through, through her then passed off to the Tsar of Russia. He also managed to find a wife for General Tom Thumb. Her name was Lavinia Warren. She was also a midget, and in 1863, they got married. And their marriage was a huge event in New York City. They got married at St. Paul's. No, no, at Grace Church. Oh, at Grace Church. Yeah, That's uptown, right. Which was the, the, the fanciest. This is where all the upper class went. So, I mean, it's incredible to think that then... Well, we'll go ahead and we'll have America's, the world's leading little people get married here in a stunt. <laughs> and, and it was attended by, you know, very famous people, millionaires, celebrities. And afterwards, actually, the newlyweds visited with Barnum the White House and, oh, okay. and met Lincoln. So that was Tom Thumb. He was a huge hit, made a lot of money for Barnum and for himself mm-hmm. and would remain a lifelong friend of Barnum's. And so he was, the, although the biggest star of Barnum's uh, menagerie, repertoire. repertoire, if you will, you also had Ching and Aang, also called the Siamese Twins. In fact, that's how we get the term Siamese Twins, because they were from Siam, which mm-hmm. was Thailand, these fishermen that moved to the United States. They were conjoined at the sternum, and they actually had fused livers. You can say that they kind of owned their deformity because they started managing their own career as freak curious. Curiosity. Strangely enough, conjoined Asian twins, they actually had a plantation in the South. They owned slaves. <laughs> they, it's not funny, it's weird. No, it's just but it's they bo- morally very they, confusing. They both had wives and they had a total of 22 children. The, the, uh, so- the 22 children... <laughs> They both had wives. Did you hear that part? Yeah, Did you not no, hear that? I got- Barnum himself uh, got involved with them early. He, he had a wax version of them in the 40s, naturally. naturally. During the war, because of financial troubles, they actually had to quit their plantation, and that's when they actually went on tour with Barnum. They died in 1874. So Barnum took advantage of people that had actual physical deformities, but it seems like he also kind of made people into a deformity, sort of, right? Well, he did come across William Henry Johnson, who was an African-American man who was mentally handicapped, who was sold by his family into show business and sold to Barnum. He was between four and five feet tall and suffered from microcephaly. So he had a hard time, but at Barnum's American Museum, he played the role of, quote, what is it? Which <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, it's really terrible. That's ter- he, it is terrible. He played the role of something between a man and animal, and the audience was actually encouraged to try to guess his species and understand: is this young man or is it? Oh my god! Like, or is something. this a young man or is this a young animal? And he was encouraged then to play it up, you know, really to act like an animal and run around. So That's this is Barnum probably at what we would consider today. I think his worst. Yeah. Well, but he had respectable pursuits that he was doing at this time, and we won't get into this. We, as we mentioned in our Castle Garden Battery Park podcast, 
he did bring Jenny Lind to the United States. She was the Swedish nightingale, the soprano, uh, who was a huge sensation in Europe and sold out concerts and operas wherever she went. And she was practically unheard of in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so Barnum coaxed her over to New York and arranged for all kinds of concerts in New York and then really Uh all across the country at an extraordinary price. But he pulled out all the stops for her publicity Mm -hmm. campaign and really built a star in the middle of the 1800s. He pulled off, I would say a sort of publicity campaign that we would that would rival anything today. He built her stardom so that people would even want to come and hear her sing. She made the, she became the most famous woman in America. So Barnum took Jenny Lynn on tour mm-hmm. in 1850 and 1851 and had great success with these other people and with his museum in general. But in the middle of the decade around 1856, he was also doing development on the side, because of course Barnum had a lot of things going on, and back up in Connecticut, he was creating a new real estate development in East Bridgeport. I don't really understand all the details, but let's just say that he invested a lot of money into a clock company, and they were supposed to go into this development with him. They fell out. He nearly went bankrupt, and Barnum was actually, because of all of this, wrapped up in bankruptcy court from 1856 to 1860. He almost lost everything, including the museums, which were still open. He actually had a lot of help from his friends. Even General Tom Thumb came out of an early retirement to go on tour with him again to raise some money. And oh, that was sweet. Stature. That's really nice. See, they were friends. So the museum is still doing gangbuster business, though. So, But then something totally ultimately tragic happens. On July 13th, 1865, there is a huge fire, and the entire museum goes up in flames. It started in the furnace of a nearby restaurant, like around noon. It burned the entire museum to the ground. There were almost 200 injuries, but no one died. No humans died. Oh, but the animals. The, you know, all these poor animals in the cages, they couldn't get out, so they all died in their cages. Some of them were seen jumping out the window. Snakes had escaped onto the floor and was slithering uh. out the door. The whales, they had to, like, smash the tanks to get the water to help put out the fire. So the whales would just have those thrashing there in, this, in these broken around. tanks. The, some of the, but the people did escape, but it, there were these some comic scenes of some of the, uh, you know, the freak stars running out. There was... Anna Swan, the Nova Scotia giantess, was, uh, you know, she had, to, she had to be rescued from one of the top floors. There was kind of a scene of comedy because people attempted to save some of the objects because it was like, oh, they're of such value. Some people thought that some of the wax figures were people and then tried to save them. Ah. This one man actually picked up the Jefferson Davis drag figure that I sh- t- right. mentioned earlier, hurled him out the window, but. <laughs> He hurled him out the window, and the dress kind of flew up. So, like, the crowd laughed because it was like, you know, his his shame was being exposed for all to see. And then some kids picked it up and hung it on Fulton Street. <laughs> so there was spectacle aplenty, but seriously... The museum was burning down, and there were tens of thousands of people in the street watching it burn. Yeah, it was It was his – you could say it's his largest show that he ever put on, Barnum, which is one he didn't want to do. Well, then he tried to rebuild three years later up Broadway. He did try to reopen with the remaining artifacts that he did have, but then that museum burnt down. <laughs> so, by the, after, yeah. yes. so by that point, 
like he's lost so many artifacts that he just sort of like goes, you know what? I'm done with this business. And what's incredible to note at the same time that his museums are burning down and he's rebuilding them, during all of this in 1865, he also was serving two terms in the Connecticut State Legislature. <laughs> he was, he was that an is really elected incredible. official running for office and winning. Well, then, of course, you're probably wondering, when does the circus come to town? Well, soon after all of this, <laughs> in 1871, P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome opens okay. and goes on tours. It's kind of a mix of a circus, a freak show, and a traveling zoo. And he adopts the slogan, The Greatest Show on Earth, in 1872. That would merge with James Bailey's circus in 1881, but they would have all kinds of difficulties and break up in 1885 and then merge again in 1888 to form Barnum and Bailey's Circus. That was a huge hit. Barnum then, of course, brought on other curiosities like uh-huh. Jumbo. Jumbo the Elephant. Jumbo right, the one Elephant. Of his famous stars. Which he bought from a London zoo in 1882 and would die in a famous train wreck later. In 1875, P.T. Barnum would actually be elected the mayor of Bridgeport. So he went on to this illustrious career as a showman and also as a um, politician. And we should mention, by the way, that there is a huge Barnum Museum in Bridgeport that you should visit. There are lots of Tom Thumb artifacts, especially. So then what is it today? What's in that space? Well, they after it burned down... Um, there was actually another building of note that came up in the very spot because this is where the New York Herald had its first office uh-huh. was right there. And and before they moved up to what would become Herald Square. Sure. The, uh, so then another building was built there called the St. Paul Building. The building that's currently there is called the Western Electric Building. It's been remodeled for the financial firm Merrill Lynch. Mm-hmm. It's not truly exciting architecturally. There is an Aubon Pan downstairs. If you want to, if you want to, like revisit in your mind the how great and wonderful this museum Talk must have been. Talk about a letdown. <laughs> Just get a coffee and a croissant, and then sit down there and <laughs> imagine, you know, snakes and uh, and Fiji mermaids and all sorts of nonsense. Melting wax figures. <laughs> it all happened there. It all happened there. And there you have our survey of Barnum's American Museum. Thanks for listening and going on this crazy ride with us this week. We hope it was worth your 25 cents. If that's, if that's how much you paid for this, <laughs> you're paying too much. <laughs> anyway, check out our blog, as always, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. It'll be updated with lots of pictures. Uh, you'll have some pictures of Fiji Mermaid, amongst other things, up on the blog. You so. won't want to miss that. Um, We have another great episode next week, so uh, thanks for tuning in, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.